0: the state here for a second. We've been applying stuff around that. So, I'm quoting in notes now. The change role dramatically transformed proletarian visions of communism. In Marxist theory, there have been no role for the state to play, emphasis mine, either before or after the revolution. Free market capitalism was replaced by socialism. That is the, quote, conscious planning of production by associated producers. Nowhere does Marx say the state, and that has got an end note because this is end notes. We have to actually look at the damn end notes. That is Mendel. That's a classical Trotskyist. So, like, that's, you know, not like a left comma or a platformist or a councilist. So, Marx's model of planning was not the state, but the workers' cooperative on one hand and the joint stock company on the other until they merge, which interestingly, everybody hates that now. Um, <laughs> I mean, including me, because I don't think workers' cooperatives get you out of capitalism, but that merger apparently is super important. Likewise, Ingalls famously suggested in The Origins of the Family, Private Property, and the State that after the revolution, the state was to find its place at the Museum of Antiquities, the site of the Spinwell and the Bronze Axe. And now I'm going to speak. After this time period of infrastructural arrangement, we're all Lasallians and chartelists. And like even people who deny that they are, they're not MMTers, are hyper-Leninists. They are, still. Because, like, you ask someone about the difference between socialization and nationalization, And they look at you like you're fucking crazy.
1: The state fully adequate to the task. It only develops during the world wars. Mm -hmm. And Kautsky is kind of on this tip beforehand. But certainly throughout the world wars, it becomes even more obvious that the state is, is pretty much the only plausible. Well, I shouldn't say that. The state is the obvious choice for what would coordinate all this. This is a tendency that Marx and Engels saw directly. Marx was much more antagonistic towards this tendency than Engels. Engels. Engels had more patience for this way of thinking.
0: As I say, Engels goes back and forth between using socialization and nationalization until the very end of his debates with Kowski, where he finally says... Settles down on like on his critique of the air program that you know nationalization isn't it, but there's plenty of evidence actually in the chronology of his work that he goes back and forth. Um, so but let's get into this like the, a little bit more. The new, vi- the, the new vision of uh, this new vision generated by Bates amongst revolutionaries. How would the this total planner state come about through nationalization or socialization? Note also, and this is me adding that we are no longer talking about the class nature of the state, because the worker, the workers' movement now assumes it has the popular force to direct it. <laughs> Side note, people who argue for democratic socialism basically all still assume this now, without any workers' movement to adjacently paste it upon. Would everything necessary to be directed from above by a national parliament, so would it be necessary to be wholly replaced by that bourgeois apparatus would one more appropriate to proletarians, a federation of workers' unions. In either case, the problem was to figure out how separate units still organized around the economic activity and thus surviving more or less intact from the capitalist era would exchange their products with one another while putting aside the, a portion of their output for the growth of the productive apparatus. Of course, automation would eventually solve these problems, but what about in the meantime? There were no easy answers. And by the way, this is the same debate we're still fucking having.
1: And they go to quote Adam Perswarski here. On the one hand, as Korsh, Wigforce and others pointed out, direct control of a particular firm by the immediate producers would not remove the antagonism between producers and consumers, that is workers and other firms. On the other hand, transfer to centralized control, of the state would have the effect of replacing the private authority of capital by the bureaucratic authority of the government.
0: Which I keep on pointing out both times all the time that like, you know, I, I didn't pick this up from course, I, I just marked it through for Marx. If you replace the bureaucratic state, and it subsumes all functions of the state, you have just formalized the capitalist exploitation structure, and you are thus self exploiting. Um, and if you just if you remove that, but have it done by different producers, there's still a chance to try to get an edge up on each other and thus continue the exploitation train. In which case, you still have firms that are collectively managing going on a business in a supposedly socialist economy. And you might need stuff like progressive income tax to mitigate the damage, which, by the way, would imply that there are still profits, which would tell you that the capitalist circuit is still unbroken. And that you have in both cases just removed the locus of the capitalist from a person to a form which Engels predicts could happen in socialism, utopian or scientific, but he thinks that the socialists can control that.
1: Well, and the whole concept of workers' co-ops on the market being socialism is the Proudhonist vision that Marx developed his critique of capitalist political economy, in part, to undermine.
0: Well, except to demonstrate- that in the, in the Proudhonist vision, they actually get rid of money. And then this, they don't even do that.
1: That's, thats even a step down from Proudhon.
0: I will say, if you give—if
1: you're going to give me the choice between, you know, uh, workers' co-ops versus total state control, I'll I think do workers think
0: co-ops every time. I, that's not a hard one. Although, um, if there's still any capitalist firms on Earth, they're likely to outcompete it if it's in the domain of actual competition and not a niche domain.
1: So anyway, Endnotes continues. How one saw the future role of the state affected one's strategy in the present. Is the state a committee for managing the affairs of the bourgeoisie or a neutral instrument reflecting the balance of class forces? Such debates gave rise to fundamental splits within the workers' movement and to later its fragmentation. I mean, you could
0: actually see fascism as one of the effects of this, believe it or not.
1: (sighs) It pains me to say this but i do think it's fair to see fascism as a sort of like ultra-right socialism or something it's not that crazy
0: it is class collaborationist see... ultra-right socialism that depends to build it now its actual voting base was not workers but its ideological formation in italy was was like national syndicates and national syndicalism which was to take like giovanni Wajintao would probably be sitting here going yes i just took I just took the Hegelian synthesis. I took <laughs> I took the workers' co-op, and I added the absolute state. voila! Fascism. <laughs> and we just add yeah. some ethnic chauvinism to enforce borders, even though we don't really believe it. Have a nice day.
1: That, yeah, uh, It's because this was on the container of the nation, which is the next section. It's not just the growing role of the state, but it's also the growing role of the nation. They say late development was national development. And this explains why socialists were largely willing to jettison their internationalism when the Great War arrived. They justified their support for war by reference to the movement's success following the wars of national consolidation in the 60s and 70s. And unfortunately, even on like the German side, this is what Bakunin was worried about Marx and Engels falling for during their debates in the first international because Bismarck was an intelligent strategist and goaded Napoleon the third into invading him, making it look like it was a, you know, defensive war for German soil against French aggression. And that was a big reason why they were suckered into it. But the more rational reason is that, That national consolidation built up the infrastructural industries that the workers' movement was based on.
0: Right. That's a very simple and elegant explanation. Right. And if you think about the LaSalle debates in the context of the Bakunin debates, which comes later – LaSalle was explicit about this with Bismarck, particularly in his post-death letters, because he he even kind of supported autocracy of this old aristocratic class, which would make an alliance with the workers to build up this national infrastructure, because LaSalle saw the state as a neutral category, which horrified Marx. But when, when Bakunin's arguing with him, Marx is almost going back to the LaSallian position. He doesn't fully. Marx tries to carve out a center position between the two things without explicitly restating this the South, but it's pretty clear that's what he's doing. But does it hold?
1: The center cannot hold, is the expression. By supporting the war effort, workers would prove themselves respectable, and the interstate framework set up the conditions for further expansion of the industrial proletariat. They make a note about Luxembourg and how this interpretation of the war in the Junius pamphlet And she saw almost uniquely among Social Democrats, Koff, also Martov, don't forget about Martov, that the 1914 war would be different. And of course, a lot of the Zimmerwald left, which at the time included Lenin. Today, war does not function as a dynamic method of procuring for rising young capitalism, the preconditions of its, quote, national development. War has this character only in the isolated and fragmentary case of Serbia, she says, um, but the implication is that war had really functioned this way in the past. Right? right. And so those conditions in the workers' movement were set much earlier on than 1914 or 1917 or many of the classical cutoff points where we cry betrayal,
0: Right. Yeah, apparently this, this would this would implicate that it was probably said in, like, the 1870s with the national movement itself and the workers' detente with it. I also never could understand why all these people thought, thought the nationalists were on their side in the 1848. I mean, like, even though clearly they did, and Marx did too. Like, And when you're breaking up empires, to be fair, these late feudal, early modern absolutist empires, which were brief flips on the globe, really, I mean, you know. I guess brief flips 200 years in that brief but like compared comparatively they 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 almost are like they're proto nation states but they're not consolidated on a national identity and you have like you have no consolidation of identity there I mean you know when when we talk about the medieval world even in a place like England it takes a long time for people to quit thinking themselves as Angles Saxons Mercians you know whatever and start thinking of themselves as English. And that's in a weird island with the conditions were actually kind of unique for this stuff to happen faster, similar to, like, Japan.
1: This is really in the DNA of so-called Orthodox Marxism, of the Social Democrats that didn't end up taking some kind of internationalist corrective that may or may not really have been on the table. What they quote here from... Hobswam is that the alternative to a national political consciousness was not in practice, working class internationalism, but rather a sub political consciousness, which still operated on a scale much smaller than or irrelevant to that of the nation state. And so when I'm reading Kautsky, you see a celebration of micro languages getting homogenized into a big national language and the type of communication that allows because the assumption is the building of these bigger nationalities will strengthen the workers' movement,
0: right? Which gets you back into like the progressive, like the the earlier Bernsteinian and even first international progressive imperialism arguments, right? Um, and the you know I can even think of recently I've heard an MMT or argue that like uh, providing full employment mm. at just below a living wage would increase the reserve army of labor. I mean, this way of thinking is not just on the Marxist left. It is strewn throughout the left in a way that even people who oppose imperialism, what they tend to do is just flip this around and favor another power than the ones that are currently in charge and just hope that they do it in a better, less imperial way somehow.
1: Yeah. Another thing that's elegant about this is that it leads them directly to parliamentary politics, not out of ulterior like political motives or, you know, trying to create a political class or something, but just as follows. So here is the point. Look, they're saying it. Here's the point. In many ways, it was state led infrastructure building in the context of national development that created a growing role for parliaments. Those parliaments had the power of the purse They controlled taxation. It was because states were able to raise taxes regularly via parliaments that they were able to borrow on bond markets to fund their infrastructure projects. The maintenance of the special public power standing above society requires taxes and state loans, a quote from State and Revolution by Lenin. Thus, it was in the interest of the old regime to share power with national parliaments in order to foster development. In return, the old regime got a massive boost to its military power. As a result, the importance of parliaments rose steadily, even though the levels of taxation involved remained low compared to what would become possible over the course of the world wars. And that's why it was worthwhile for the workers' movement to break into parliament. In the middle of the 19th century, that would have been a fool's dream, but by the century's end, and they say this, Engels was publicly calling for a peaceful transition to socialism, partially true. The ballot box replaced the barricade. Right. At that point, they sort of collaborate with the editors in the Espé Day, who chopped up Engels' introduction to class struggles in France, sometimes known as the tactics of social democracy, where Engels actually does make pro insurrectionary arguments and says explicitly we should not abandon insurrection. But the fact that he even admitted that workers could put their hands on the levers of power in the state was a capitulation to the Lasallian workers' movement commonsensical view. And it did seem plausible. It was much more plausible than during most of his life and for Marx's entire life.
0: I was reading Perowski on this stuff, actually. And when you look at Perrowski, early writings, point, you know, quotes Marxism is just, you know, of course, if we get the proletarians, the majority of the population, we can take it. The... And then later on, you get the rest of the stuff about Engels. And I was wondering if this was partly because they're just taking Perrowski at face value, um, particularly earlier Perrowski.
1: Um is usually more nuanced because he wants to
0: head off the
1: inevitable retorts.
0: We read some early perowski about democratic socialism, though, and it, it seems very different than when I read capital. What's that book? Social democracy, capitalism and social democracy, the democracy. Yeah. Which game theorizes this is all out. And you can see how EndNotes would come to these conclusions from a kind of structural, functional analysis of what this actually led to. I mean, you know,
1: aside from, you know, smudging angles a little bit. I think this chapter is probably one of the best.
0: Me too, although I don't think it generates a law. It gives you the
1: laws of motion for the workers' movement in the Western world, in the so-called late-developing countries. When these industries go away, the workers' movement goes away. That's what it gives you. It's not a law of motion of capitalism, but the entire time that people were theorizing capitalism, they were taking essentially these economies and England as the model, like the rise and fall of this tendency in that limited Eurocentric experience, which was the model does account for the disappearance of something that up until the seventies, everybody just thought was an imminent tendency in first world
0: capitalism. Here's the thing. If you look at classic commiseration theory, and the final crisis theory, a la pre World War II Grossman, which was the standard interpretation of, of all this. World War II should have ended a lot of these debates, and it doesn't. And why should World War II ended a lot of these debates? Because World War II looks like it is, in the development of fashion and all that, the final, the final profitability crisis. But that doesn't happen. So that's the one thing I felt when I was reading this was a little bit bracketed out is that dip. During the Great Depression, um, during this infrastructural buildup, like you do have it, and the war accelerates it and kind of solves the problem. It also resets so much that a lot of the overproduction issues that classical Marxists would have been, you know, obsessed with, it's causing the final crisis. And what would have been labeled um, engrossment and externality. I I've, Some people attribute that to Marx, but I don't. I've never seen that kind of language in Marx the countervailing tendencies become the dominant tendencies. All right. And so this seems to be emerging out of that. We can't say that the only blind side that happened during this time period is the blind side of 1970s. The 1940s is a pretty big fucking blind side. I think we're
1: just kind of not there yet. Cause that's the strange victory period.
0: Well, Okay. But here's, here's one of the reasons why it's taken us a long to do this. God damn. Damn, does it take, you do not know what time period they're often talking about, actually. It goes all the way up to the 1970s, and yet, no, it doesn't, but yet it does.
1: The 70s is hovering in the background because it's the end of this dynamic, but we're still in the Great War, basically.
0: Yeah, you could have wrote that a lot more clearly. I'm just saying. This was
1: done committee style on a Google Doc. It's remarkably clear for that.
0: We have written ourselves committee style on a Google doc and have produced things that do not, that would at least get the timeline consistent. We're (laughs) cutting. anyway. (laughs) I don't know. As a person who prefers co-writing when it comes to close to just straight up writing, because (laughs) I I am, I am getting lost at what time period they're fucking talking about when I read this. Um, I I know they're talking about the great, I'm talking about 1870s, the great war. Most of the time, but the infrastructural developments is actually later. This is
1: the background. The apex of that infrastructure is during full state mobilization in World War II. But it's that Long Depression that and national development that kicks that off. So the beginning is in you know the Long Depression. The apotheosis is in World War II, right? And the post-war period. And then the decline is a couple decades later.
0: That's the oh, that's yeah. the arc. But it's not. It doesn't even take a generation. Um, not even a generation. One of the fascinating things about this, though, um, to to think about this a little bit, you know, you mentioned great traumas. Um, <laughs> I find it fascinating that there's a there's almost a trauma in, you know, to use it metaphorically. We both know this is not an actual trauma. There seems to be some kind of psychic disturbance of with with almost the entire left not willing to be looking looking earlier than 1914. Yeah, n- the 1920s are actually the, uh, n- different from here as far as like the workers as a political force and that as an integrated sub force in America. The 19 teens and 1920s are the high <laughs> point. Yeah, the the great exception to this are the social anarchists. Right, but but everybody else like we don't look at. It's hard to get people to look at. Um, the long depression and the role that played in forming the social movement. But I mean, I'm just reading a book by Christopher Lash. So it was apparent to people in the fifties and sixties, that's when he was writing that, that it was super important. And yet now you would have thought history began in world war one. And like the decisive moments of history for everybody was the new deal to world war two. And then like, let's pretend the seventies didn't happen. And then the nineties didn't happen. And then, We're here now. Let's go back to the 30s. But we're not going to talk about how we got to the 30s. And we're not going to talk about the 70s because that's just too traumatic. And also, even though a lot of us, I didn't, you didn't. But there are enough people alive who did that it's even living memory.
1: We're dealing there with mythology. We're dealing there with ways of exiting the present and fleeing from the problems that we have today.
0: So instead not. of the general strike or the great man, we have the Great Depression and the New Deal as, as as the operant myths. Or are, are the Bolshevik Revolution as your operant myth? or um, the Chinese Revolution as your operant myth? Are we all Sorelians now? I'm afraid that some Frankfurt School
1: theories about total systems drifting into reactionariness, no matter what they are, has quite a bit of logic to me. If you are for a political ideology of some kind and you're systematically conforming the world to a political strategy, that does kind of follow now, doesn't it? Yeah. I want to read a couple paragraphs here. It was only a question of time, according to the systematic and statistically minded German socialist. This is Hopswam before the parties could pass the magic figure of 51% of the votes, which in democratic states must surely be the turning point and notes that hope survived down to the great war after the war attempts to roll back constitutionalism and democracy proved successful, especially in central Eastern and Southern Europe where both were of recent vintage. By contrast, before the war, the expansion of the franchise through struggle had seemed inevitable. Social democracy became the dominant form of the workers' movement in countries where workers had been enfranchised. In states where workers had not won the vote, they could look to those where workers had in order to see their own future emerging in the present. In that way, stagism extended itself. Russia looked to Germany as a model, both economically and politically. And here's where we do pivot a bit towards not strictly the absolute core (laughs) economies. As it turned out, the trajectories of late, late developing countries did not actually replicate those of the late developing ones. Outside of Western Europe, movements had to have a more revolutionary orientation since the old regime was more resistant to recognizing workers' interests. Anarchism was strongest in Southern and Eastern Europe for that reason, and because there... Advance was impossible without the peasantry, but stagism was also wrong for another reason with the further advance of the technological frontier catch up was no longer possible on the basis of late development. And here's a quote from Allen global economic history. In the 20th century, the policies that had worked in Western Europe, especially in Germany and the USA proved less effective in countries that had not yet developed. The only way forward was through big push industrialization. As we will see later, the latter required not alliances with the old regime, but rather its liquidation as the very precondition of catch-up growth. So emerging here, we have been talking about mostly, been talking about Western Europe. Now, this is a more general theory. We Mm got all of Europe instead of just Western Europe. How broad minded, how cosmopolitan, (laughs) but in all seriousness, we have an explanation for the different types of development and the different political paths necessitated by the same drive for development. Now you could read this in a politically deterministic way, but I don't, (laughs) I don't think it's just because Russia saw Germany and ideologized that that was the future. There are reasons independent of ideology for Russia to attempt those levels of production. The fact that it could only be accomplished through a revolution, liquidation of the ancient regime and big push industrialization emerge as a structural factor. notes will later make the argument that when countries in this situation attempted the quote American model and attempted to implement what was quote late industrialization, they would fail. They would flounder in cartel regimes dominated by the old elites. Yes. So, we have here in the midst of all this, you know, post bong repays pretty elegant theory of the different trajectories.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I it, it's it we now have a structural functional theory that serves some use kind of hate that we have to say structural functionalism because somebody has removed both those terms from my ability to use them. Um, <laughs> so I now have to make them a compound adjective.
1: Because you, you don't want to be confused for
0: an octrecerian or, or a
1: conservative sociologist, right? Right,
0: right? Exactly. So it's like, if I don't want to be called a Durkheimian or an Al-Kesarian, I have to combine the terms. Fuck, I hate language. Anyway.
1: Yeah. Um, just name drop G.A. Cohen and just feel the tidal waves of hate. Even that's, for me. That's the way I get around. It. <laughs> that's my favorite thing is that, like, everyone fucking hates him, but everyone's responding to him. And everybody secretly has his theory in the back of their minds, even if they're developing in a different direction. Like, Brenner, yeah. Yeah,
0: and, yeah. You know, all the people like, who now deny that they were ever part of analytical Marxism. Like the world system theorist and Brenner, who are also opposed to each other, but don't want to mention they were ever an analytical Marxist at any point in time, ever, ever. Thank you. Shut up.
1: Yeah, it's not like Wallerstein co-wrote one of Perzwarski's chapters in capitalism Social Democracy.
0: So integrating workers into the polity. Now we get also into more general laws of history, which are actually Mm -hmm. maybe testable in some way. Let's, Let's get into that. What do you think is the best part of this section?
1: I mean, Endnotes does have a bone of immiseration in them.
0: Right. Yeah, not just admiration. They have a bone of collapsism in them almost. There's this tendency, like, for all but theory communists go I. If you just say one more thing, I'm just going to go collapse of civilization. Like, <laughs> like, we're not there yet, but you just you look at me wrong. And <laughs> what's interesting, though, is that they
1: connect the sort of Marxian attitude towards amelioration as not counting against the revolution, the position that Luxembourg takes in reform and revolution, the position that Marx argues against Paul Lafargue saying, well, fuck, if, if you're just using these demands as agitprop and you don't really think it's going to happen and you're just waiting for things to get worse, then fuck, I'm not a Marxist. Like, Endnotes basically puts that together with a theory of capitalist collapse and posits that the former relies on the latter. So let me read that. As the workers' movement developed within national zones of accumulation, it also fractured. That was true even before the Great War broke the movement apart. The movement became destabilized because, at least in the most advanced capitalist countries, it proved possible to ameliorate workers' conditions via national development in a way that dispelled workers' revolutionary energies. Reform and revolution split off from one another, Social Democrats had initially argued that such a split was impossible. And this is a quote from Kautsky. The elevation of the working class brought about by the class struggle is more moral than economic. The industrial conditions of the proletariat improve, but slowly, if at all. But the self-respect of the proletarians mounts higher, as does also the respect paid by them by the other classes of society. They begin to regard themselves as the equals of the other classes. And to compare the conditions of the other strata of society with their own, They make greater demands on society, brackets, which society is unable to fill. Increasing discontent among the proletarians. According to Kautsky, it was a, quote, children's disease to think that reforms would make exploitation more palatable. Reforms were necessary for the revolutionary effort. They afforded workers a little security so they could focus on organizing the final battle. Footnote. This is of course, where Lenin gets his idea that left communism is an infantile disorder. He sees it as an early form of socialist consciousness rather than a late one. I should add that this is Marx's attitude. (laughs) This doesn't just cut against Kautsky and Lenin, but this is their rationale. Kautsky could only say so because like all second internationalists, he still believed in the Kladderadatsch, the coming collapse of the system, which is going to unfold regardless of what reforms were won.
0: Ah, uh, yes, on- that's what we're talking about. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the onset of the First Great Depression in 1873 seemed to confirm that belief. In the course of the Depression, capital centralized to an extreme degree. It concentrated in industrial combines linked together through cartels. On that basis, socialists announced that proletarians, along with most capitalists, peasants artisans and small business owners would soon find themselves thrown out onto the street okay so you don't normally see the claims of the kautskians and the classical social democrats tied to collapse
0: right you don't after the 1920s i mean you do like even in the time of grossman you do and that is what mm-hmm. prompts, like, there's a lot of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, for example, about the failure of the revolution prompting, you know, the Judeo-Bolshevik conspiracy of the Frankfurt School, blah, 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 But there is a truth that the Frankfurt School was responding to one of its own members, you know, trying to fix this theory, and it's still not happening. And that is like Adorno and Horkheimer arguing with Heinrich Grossman over, over the, the final collapse theory and the, you know, the different kinds of accumulations. I mean, it was always there. Mm. Reading forward,
1: the connection socialists perceived between industrial concentration and unemployment was the key to their revolutionary position. Technical development would force capitalists to replace men with machines. Yep. In societies organized around the capitalist mode of production, that reduction necessarily issued an unemployment for many people. As it turned out further technical development in the infrastructural industries did not generate unemployment, especially in the large manufacturing combines. Instead, the growth of the productive forces created jobs and even more so after the end of the first great depression in 1896. Simplifying somewhat, we can explain this phenomenon as follows. Although there were huge technical advances in production in the course of the 19th century, few such advances took place in assembly. Here, human hands were still needed As a result, infrastructural industries absorbed huge quantities of both labor and capital. They required a small army of engineers, but also a large army of hired hands, which actually put together all the precision made parts. Moreover, the infrastructural industries were organized in such a way that whenever those hands obstructed the assembly process, they forced machines worth huge amounts of money to stand idle. Development thus created not impoverishment, but the possibility for some workers to win higher wages through work stoppages.
0: So what is interesting about that is the whole strike thing becomes more valuable because of the situation, which is why strikes may not be attempted in some, you know, certain other places. But I've actually read people who've taken this very same description um, to say that this disproves Marx's reading of all the inputs that go into labor theory of value. If if this is true, um, then you cannot state that machines are just negatively affecting you know as a form of constant capital the the actual labor relations in such a way that leads to miseration which is the classical marxist description of what happens i am i like you i'm not totally sure that it logically flows from Marx, but enough people fucking believe it like i like um as a side note, in a recent debate within with MMTers, I had Marxists ask me to make this argument,
1: right.
0: you know, um, based off of like uh, you know Grossman and Mandel about why you know nothing could be done with with monetary policy to end the situation. And while I have my disagreements with MMT, mostly about crash theory, I found that argument to be laughable. I mean, the argument Steve Keen actually brings this up as a disproof of Marx. Uh, Ron Tabor does too. The anarchist. So if Marx actually believes that, then, yeah, I mean, it's easy to, like, it's damning.
1: I do think this is a Marxist rather than Marx problem. Here's why. You still need a great amount of human labor to put together all of these industrially produced parts. Whatever value is embedded in those industrially produced parts, whatever unemployment would have been generated by replacing the actual production of the parts is reintroduce and assembly. Right. Like it ends up being one of those situations where they think that they're going to automate away the need for manual labor. And then manual labor comes back in another way. So it's not as if labor is taken out and the value relations remain the same. No, what's disproven is that the growth of the productive forces will necessarily take out all those jobs.
0: Yeah. I mean in that
1: I... discrete situation. Endnotes to their credit says that, well, Marx's predictions about, you know, the fragments on machines, the worker gives way to the machine minder or something. They say that this does eventually come true. Right. But it, it doesn't scaled co- labor, it takes a long time. It takes a very long time. It's a tendency that's imminent in capitalism. And it doesn't happen when the socials movement think it will, And they use this as a way of explaining what would appear to us to be inconsistencies in socialist politics and a way of explaining why reform and revolution ultimately splits. Because if the growth of the productive forces actually produces more jobs and creates the basis for the strike to become a political weapon, then why would workers overturn The society in which they're gaining such a stake and such an ability to put a wrench into.
0: So so hence, even though Lenin attacking left communists goes to an obstinately left communist adjacent position about trade unions and trade union consciousness, because the trade unions focus on the strike and on material gains means that they're actually keeping capitalism function in some way. And this leads to both Leftcom and Norfite. I mean, you know, there are Leninists who hold to this position, even though it is remarkably unpopular now. But the most, the most notorious one of the Norfite trots, you know, the David Norfite trots who hold to this. But there's also left communists who have classically held to this as well, that the, the emergence of a trade union consciousness because of this kind of divide and because that the immiseration doesn't happen Leads to a r- refusal to be revolutionary and is sapping up revolutionary energy. <laughs> um, it's weird because it is both hyperdeterminist and hypervoluntaristic at the same time. But it does make sense as a kind of post hoc explanation of dealing with this problem.
1: Yeah, it does in a sort of bipolar, excuse the term, sort of way, flipping back and forth between extremes of explanation. It's not simple and elegant.
0: No, I mean, like if you take the Hilferding Lenin debates, Hilferding and Lenin, for example, accept the same conditions of capital and the same tendency towards monopolization and the same set of values for imperialism. And yet, Hilferding thinks it's going to lead to the democratic assumption of the joint stock, monopoly capital joint stock subsuming with the state. And then since the proletariat makes the bulk of the population, if you can democratically control that, you have now built socialism through its opposite, you know, through its intimity. Right. That's the Hilferding. And then Lenin actually sees this in a more almost accelerationist thing that the wars generated from this kinds of competition between monopoly powers would themselves destabilize capitalism for revolutions to emerge, a la what had happened in Russia um, via revolutionary defeatism. Neither of them take into account that there were countervailing tendencies that produce new firms and new centers of the economy that go in the opposite of monopolization because monopolization doesn't stop the business cycle. Now, I don't think anyone's claimed it with, but it's a weird, it's a weird oversight because monopolization begins to actually replace immiseration as the eschological tendency to which all this builds. And it is a kind of immiseration in Marxist theory too, because it immiserates all the other classes into the proletariat. Now... According to Monopoly Capital, you're either, by the end of this, either part of the, of the capitalist grand structure of the joint stock company or you're, or you're a worker and none that and So meet, which also causes both sides to get outflanked by social movements before World War II that they didn't see coming because of these predictions. I guess Endnotes, rather strangely, uh, gives you a somewhat deterministic reason why this would have happened other than the fact that they were wrong or betrayed. But I, I'm also like you, I don't understand Endnotes' relationship to agency, either aggregate or individual and in all this. This actually seems obscure to me because this, while it fixes the whole betrayal problem of the workers' movement or of the socialist leadership, it does not fix the question of who, of who is an agent and all this or not.
1: Yeah, although I think this argument basically accepts Perzowski's framework of national
0: Right. Because the national this, battlefield. This is right? nationally bound. But remember, the revolutionary socialists were arguing that it didn't have to be. So...
1: Well, it shouldn't have been. But the fact that the entire workers' movement was based on infrastructural industries and were sort of structural, functional to infrastructural industries, gained the power to shut down the engine of the nation in infrastructural industry was able to have a voice in the parliament and control the power of the purse to give loans and to, you know, fund the government, like all these things are sort of structurally bound together. And so this last paragraph of the section brings us home. The consequences of this new situation were immense. The organizations of the workers movement were able to gain recognition as part of society and they won gains for their members on that basis. However, to accept social recognition required that they no longer promote revolution as their goal. It wasn't possible to accept the constitutional framework and simultaneously to argue for its overthrow. That risked the possibility that the movement might lose its recognition, and therefore also the gains it had won. Direct quote from Perzwarski, the choice between legal and extra legal parliamentary tactics had to be made. This dilemma was clearest in the cases of unions, the key molecules that make up the collective worker. So and then it goes into a case study about why labor leaders rise outside of the rank and file. It does account for the specific species of labor leader that you end up getting that Cannot actually turn off the rank and file as if controlling a faucet, but that's their job that's yeah his job. Did,
0: or in my case her job most of the time. I want to read a paragraph of this because this, this actually got to something I experienced in my daily life in a union um, and I'm not in an industrial union, but I've seen this. Workers' class interest had to be instantiated in some way. Towards that end, unions created organs to punish behaviors that maximized individual well-being e.g. E. scabbing, at the expense of the collective. They then began to exert power by threatening to withdraw collective labor, and sometimes by actually withdrawing it. Here was the crux of the issue. In the context where unions set out to improve the workers' wages and conditions while remaining roughly within the bounds of legality, unions needed to demonstrate not only the capacity to strike, but also the capacity to not strike, so long as their demands were met. Otherwise, it could not gain leverage. For that reason, unions had to develop a disciplinary mechanism, which, in addition to suppressing behavior that maximized workers' serial interests, ensured that the collective acted in line when negotiated settlements. Developing such a mechanism did not necessitate a stable separation between the organizational leadership and the rank-and-file. However, that separation could be avoided only where the rank-and-file militancy was continuously operating. Then struggles tended to ebb and flow. The only way unions remained effective over time was to build formal structures that allowed negotiators to appear as if they had the capacity to turn the rank-and-file militancy on and off at will, which in fact they could do neither. And at this point, the interest of the leaders in the rank-and-file diverged, which I have seen in real life over and over and over again, and and not even in the capitalist circuit where it is even clearer, but in like public sector circuits and private sector yeah. sectors. The distinction between a serial
1: interest and a group interest also comes straight out of Perzwarski. The serial interest being what I kind of take Marx to be imagining the sort of overlapping individual kind of combined emergent interest of the proletariat, whereas the group interest is something a bit more homogenized.
0: Um, wow. It's the aggregate of the collective. What I find fascinating about this is this eventually leads to more and more professionalization of the, I mean, like, if you look at where this went in the 20th century, it led to more and more professionalization of the union leaders as almost a separate class. They increasingly were only partially emerged in the job, if at all. It also eventually led to things like non-oppositional bargaining, which is, like, standard in most professional unions now and stuff like that because the ability not to strike as as valuable to the leadership as the available to strike, because it proves that they have a capacity as a mediator increasingly in an area which they don't have mass membership, even in the places where they are, where they represent.
1: Right. To read the rest of the paragraph that you started, rank and file militancy became a liability except when under strict control of the leadership. Meanwhile, the leadership became a permanent paid staff from union dues and no longer depended on employers for wages. Leaders' interests were increasingly identified not with the defense of union members, but with the survival of the unions. Leaders thus tended to avoid confrontations with employers that put the future of the union at risk. In this way, substantive reform, let alone revolution, became an increasingly distant goal. The very organizations that workers had built up to make the revolution possible, the revolutions that instantiated the collective worker, Became an impediment to revolution,
0: and I think this is undeniable. I think it's even an impediment to reforms most of the time. Like,
1: yeah, certainly the union movement that we have now to say union movement as a as a figure of speech, basically.
0: Um, But I mean, this logic makes unions irrelevant for all but a lot of areas that are either still classically industrial production, which is rare, um, or in areas that are cartelized where they can act similarly and even then the union's interest often diverges from the interest of of even the the sectional worker much less the workers as a whole right the answer to this uh the, this normally given is social unionizing right which i i kind of believe in but it's a completely different thing like if you really believe in social unionizing the unions become something completely outside of the sectoral interest. And if you take a strict view of it from the standpoint of American law, that's illegal. It's literally um, illegal. Yeah. It's partly um, violations. Like if, if you were there, you, know, you you can, you can push those borders, but and all union movements have an incentive to now to allow for social unionizing within their ranks, because otherwise they will not survive. And the, another couple of rounds of economic contraction and expansion because they get shedded off politically every time.
1: But it's surprising how much that doesn't animate some union leaders that the way that the incentive structure works has a more, I don't know, medium term interest in preserving the near future of the union over the overwhelming trend. Like, you you would think that all union leaders now would be frothing at the mouth, class war Marxists, or something along those lines, but it's exactly the opposite. According to this explanation, this comes from, ironically, it's dues funding that makes their interests, their professional interests, diverge from the rank and file. I find this sort of entertaining, because dues funding is, you know, one of the only ways that a working class organization can fund itself. But when you're dealing with a labor union, perhaps the union movement or, you know, any future unionization efforts have to learn the same lesson that, you know, the Roman Republic learns that you don't want a professional armed force. You want your leaders to be workers. You want your leaders to be employed at the same factory or, or know, employed at the same workplace.
0: In some ways, this explains the problem, though that I've that I've noticed about the unions and their legalization all over the world. It tends to be directly uh, correlated to their lack of effectiveness. The more legal they are, the less effective they tend to be, and and because that necessitates paying. However, I will also say, having tried to join the IWW, and I don't mean this is a slide on the IWW, but it is very hard to scale up any organization large enough to stand up to an international firm with all volunteer labor um, (laughs) all the time.
1: Yeah, this isn't to say volunteer labor. This is to say if you have people leading a union effort, they should be workers. They should have another source of income.
0: Well, like for most unions now, they tend to be dual. You, You have the elected... Um, which you may get some pay for, like uh, it'll be token, but you may get some pay for Like when I was in AR, when I showed up to a meeting, they gave me 10 bucks.
1: That doesn't seem to me as threatening as what they're describing here. Maybe I'm being naive.
0: But what what happened with the dues payer movement, and when you look at what happened here, one of the reasons why the unions, I know some people are going to mad at me for saying this, the unions now often do not even have an incentive to grow as far as their actual paid administrative team goes because they're not paid based off the size of the union and to accommodate that the dues are then used to create the the structures the kind of like physical building and all this for them to start actually benefiting from things like stock in the companies in which their people work which bill bradley the great left communist pointed out was a problem <laughs> People who don't know my joke, he's a he's a he's a Clinton era New Democrat from the 80s and 90s. Um, pointed out it was going to be terminal for the union movement in the 80s. I mean, like it was clear to even like neoliberalizers how bad this was going to be. And the reason why it developed is because, as I hate to say it, for example, I know all the progressives like stuff like closed shop, but if you have to have closed shop. Which means to work out a thing, you have to be a member of the union. The union does not have to like incentivize you joining. It is a way out of the free rider problem, right? But the the, the closed shopness of the union is interesting because unless it's a actual syndicalist workplace or a co-op, what you're saying is you're giving a union monopoly over, over your mm-hmm. representation. And which stops raiding and stops interunion competition, but it also means that the union has no real incentive to be responsible <laughs> to its members. People on, on the progressive left who talk about closed shop laws being like the removal of that being the end of the union movement tells you how weak the union movement actually is because they know that they can't compel yeah. certain industries without closed shop.
1: They need it because without closed shop, the idea of winning over workers one by one is impossible right it, that's yeah. what that's why these like solutions that create these incentive structures these cartel structures right it's like, a cartel structure that's why they end up looking good is because without them you can't have the institution
0: but the institutional pressures once you do that it, it, unless you have closed shop Completely mean you have to find alternate terms of funding to keep the union membership going. And the way to do that, frankly, is stocks and lobbying.